Okay. <clears throat> well, you know we've been uh, studying in the Gospel of John in our class over the last few months. Uh, we'll be continuing that for a few more weeks before we go on to something else. Uh, you're going to be opening up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 17. We'll be continuing in there today. You know, last week we studied about what we call the greatest prayer ever prayed in John chapter 17. And we talked about that was where Jesus was in the garden. He's about to go to the cross, and he's praying with the Father. Of course, we don't see the stress, perhaps, that we read about in the other Gospels. And remember, the other Gospels do mention this uh, in a couple of them, but they talk more about how he was stressed, how he was really uh, feeling the strain of having to go to his death. You don't read that so much here. What you read more about in this prayer is about his personal relationship with the Father and those that he had been given to teach the disciples and ultimately us as disciples, right? We talked about why this prayer was so great. First of all, the person who prayed it, you know, Jesus, the Son of God, the, the, the one that had been in the beginning, as we read in John 1, the one who was the Word and that had become flesh for our sakes. That made it pretty important pretty important prayer that just because of him we talked about the fact that the occasion the occasion of the prayer made it great right talked about how you can say things or there, things can be done in a specific context that don't mean anything but yet in a context of something that's great that's about to happen and, you, and I say great in the fact that he was going to the cross for our salvation it made this prayer great right it made the situation powerful the contents of the prayer, of course, we talked about how the first few verses, he's asking God to glorify him, himself, as he has glorified God. He's talking about how he is ready to go back, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, to be with God. The next part, he talked about the disciples that he'd been given, right, and asking God to help them, to be able to watch over them, to be able to help them in their ministry, because really and truly, they're going to be going out and doing some great work, right, as we read about in the book of Acts and the Gospels and the letters. We know what they did eventually, right? And then the last part of his prayer, he's praying for those who are going to hear about the Gospel through these disciples. That would be us, right? And those who followed after, who didn't see Jesus in person, in the flesh, but believed anyways, as we have, as we have believed. So that made this prayer great. And of course, what else is revealed is the victory that they had and that we have in Jesus. The victory uh, in the life that's to come, in eternity, in the judgment, but also the abundant life that we can live while we're here on earth. In fact, let's turn over to John chapter 20 again and just read what John says about why he wrote this gospel. John 20 and verse uh, 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We've read that every week, but I want that to be ingrained in your hearts, in your minds. You can have abundant life. Man, I know sometimes it doesn't seem like life is is good like some you know we have problems we have issues we have sickness we lose a job 
Things happen in this world, and we're not guaranteed health and wealth while we're here, right? You're going to have trouble. Jesus even told the disciples that. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But we can have a joy and a peace that others don't understand because we know where we're headed. We know who we belong to. We know we are part of the kingdom of heaven, not a part of the world. We talked about that a little bit last week, how many times Jesus talked about in this prayer the people of the world and that these disciples were not of the world. They had to live in the world, but they were not of the world. They're of the kingdom. And that's us too, right? As children of God, as members of the church, the kingdom of heaven, you might say the kingdom of heaven on earth, we have that inheritance coming, right? We have that joy, we should, that peace, that knowing that we are going to be with him in eternity. That should be our focus, right? That should be something that's always comforting to us, especially when we're having trials, especially when we're having issues and problems, things like that. We can have that life abundant in the victory that Jesus provides. Well, today we're going to take a little bit closer look at this prayer, in particular a few verses that we want to talk about. Uh, particularly in the first part of the prayer, in the first part of chapter 17, uh, where Jesus kind of prays or petitions God to make himself glorified. And let's read that. Let's read that passage Just see what he says there. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. All right. So here we have Jesus in the first five verses of this prayer petitioning God, right? He's petitioning God and he's asking him for something, right? He's asking for something and he's, we're going to look at what that is. What is it he's asking for? And we're going to look at why or did God grant his request? And then we're going, to let, we're going to see whether this prayer was ever really answered, right? You know, it's been said that all prayers are answered one way or another, right? It's, you can say, uh, you know, when we petition God for something, we're going to get an answer. It's either going to be yes or no, right? And we're going to look at that a little bit. See what we're talking about there. In verse 1 it says, Father, glorify your Son. Father, glorify me together with yourself. In verse 5 with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Well, what does this mean to say glorify me and, and glorify me as, you have, as I have glorified you? What, what, what is this talking about? What's this word mean? What's glor glorification mean? Well, if you think of it from the dictionary, right, it's, it's, it's being exalted. It's being raised to a certain position, right? Raised to a condition where, where you are looked up to or... or Someone is glorified because people see them as great, perhaps greater than them, right? Glorification. It's kind of a word that, it's kind of hard to explain the words, isn't it? It's more like you, you just kind of don't know when it's, when it's there. 
we, glor we glorify God in the way we live. And that's kind of backwards looking, isn't it? Because the world says someone has glory because of what they did, because how great they are. But we have glory because we humble ourselves, because we do the work of the Father. Not glory that the world thinks about, not glory that the nation thinks about. You know, we're, we're, we're not the big president, we're not the king. We're just lowly servants. Lowly servants who are trying to do the will of God. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. His request implies two great truths concerning himself. Obviously, his preexistence, as was foretold in prophecy. We read about that in John 1, but let's turn over to Micah. I want to read a, a couple of verses here in Micah 5 and see what Micah had to say about Jesus. Verse 1, Micah 5, verse 1. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now this is a prophecy of the king to come, who the Jews didn't really get that it was Jesus, right? But it's a prophecy talking about how this king has been everlasting. He's been around forever. And we read that in John 1.1, 1, 1, where it said the word was with God at the beginning, and the word was God. In John 1.14, that word became flesh. So we see the preexistence of Jesus foretold in prophecy, for, talked about by John himself, and then we also read about there his deity, how God shared his glory with his son. Turn over to Isaiah, and let's read a, a couple passages from there. Isaiah chapter 42. <clears throat> and let's just start, let's just start in verse 8. 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another not my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In other words, God doesn't share his deity or his glory with just anyone. But he shares it with the Son. He glorifies the Son, and we're going to read about how the Son has glorified the Father. Overhearing this prayer, we can appreciate why John began his disciple, this gospel with those words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John chapter 1, 14, he became flesh. Jesus asked the Father to do what here? What's he asking the Father to do? He was there before. He had the glory in heaven with God before. He's asking the Father to reinstate him to that position he had in the beginning. Okay. You remember what the scriptures say about Jesus when he came to earth? He was the son of God. He is God, but he made himself what? Anybody know? Lower than the angels, right? He lowered himself. In other words, you could say he was humbling himself, becoming a servant, uh, giving back his glory, you might say, right? To become flesh, become human, the man-God. So here we have Jesus petitioning God to reinstate his glory, the glory he shared with him in heaven from forever, from everlasting. 
from the beginning, which is the beginning of the world, but everlasting is eternity. So we see what he's doing there. Well, that leads to a second question, right? Why should God do this? Why should God grant his request? He's petitioning the Father to reinstate his glory. The glory that he, I guess you could say, released when he came to earth. That your son also may glorify you. Wait a minute. What do you say there in verse 4? When Jesus spoke these words, lift up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Well, maybe that's the answer. Jesus desires to glorify his father. Therefore, his prayer is not, it's not a purely a personal thing, right? He's not praying this just on his behalf. He's saying, reinstate my glory because I have glorified you. Okay? He wants to reciprocate by, you, by uh, honoring the Father. Honoring the Father. Sh- sh- glorifying the Father in the way he's lived, in the way he's been here on earth. In other words, he's providing an, a great example for us in our prayers, right? One that we, uh, we should probably follow. One that we should be thinking about. Turn over to the book of James. Let's read a verse from James. And James... I love James because James tells us like it is, all right? He says what he thinks, and he thinks what he says. Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust, and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's James saying there? When you're petitioning God, when you're asking God, when you're praying, you're being selfish. You're asking Him to help you. Not caring about what anybody else needs. Not caring about the will of God so much, but what you need. James is saying that's a mess. Not going to answer that prayer in a way probably that you want. Turn over to 1 John. Let's read something from there. 1 John chapter 5. 14, verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. In other words, what, what John's saying there is, If you're trying to do the will of the Father, if you're trying to glorify God, He's going to hear your prayer. And it may not be the answer that you want to get, but the answer will be according to His will. And if you're trying to line your will up with His, it will be the answer that you need and you want to. You may not like it sometimes, but it's going to be what? The will of the Father wants. The will of the Father is. So our request should always be made to the Father with His will in mind. When we pray, there's nothing wrong with petitioning the Father on our behalf. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to keep in mind that we need to have His will done. It's not us. It's not about us. We live in the world. We're children of His. We are bought with a price by the blood of Christ. We know where we're going. We know where we are. We're in the kingdom. 
So we have everything we need. We have the promises. And as long as we grasp a hold of those promises and look for his will to be done, there's nothing wrong with petitioning about things. And we'll be, we'll be given. Scripture says, ask and you shall receive. As long as those prayers are done within the will of God, you're going to receive. You're going to be given. You're going to be taken care of. A couple things here. He also talks about how you've given the authority over all flesh. The Father had already given Jesus authority. We read that in verse 2 there. The authority to give eternal life, Matthew 9. The authority to forgive sin, John 5, back in verses 26, 27. The authority to execute judgment, and Matthew 28, 28. Indeed, all authority in heaven and earth had been given. So part of the petition, part of the glorification is the authority part of that, right? In view of that, it's only proper to receive glory to accompany that. If you've got the authority, you have the power, you should receive the glory. Then he says, I have glorified you in the earth. All right, Jesus had glorified his Father on earth. How had he done that? Well, we've kind of just been talking about it. By making his Father's will and his work his chief purpose, his chief delight, the thing that he wanted to do more than anything else while he was here. And really, if you think about it, Jesus, that was his sole purpose, right? Why would he leave heaven? Why would he leave that glory he had with God to come here if it wasn't to do the will of the Father? Great example for us, right? He came from heaven for that very purpose. By his life and his words, he always glorified his father you may have heard it said why were we created why are we here right as children of god perhaps that's the same thing right we are here to glorify the father and everything that we do everything that we desire everything should be when we wake up in the morning geared and focused toward the kingdom the father right I know, I don't mean you're getting up and every minute you're thinking, what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do, what would Jesus do? But your focus should be toward that in the decisions you make, in the plans that you make, in the work that you do. Those things should be part of your thought process. And as you grow spiritually, that should become your thought process. It shouldn't even be anything you have to think about. Remember, you're not of the world. Not of the world. I know... We've got a lot of our young folks here today. And you guys got your whole lives ahead of you. The rest of us don't have so much time, right? Some more than others, I guess. But you're probably not thinking so much sometimes about what am I going to do for the kingdom? What am I going to do for God in my life? You're making plans, perhaps, or you're trying to decide, especially if you're about to graduate from high school or something, to go to school, go to college, or start a job, or whatever it is. And you're trying to find something that you enjoy. And that's all well and good. But let me say this. Perhaps you need to be thinking about what God would want you to do more than anything else. What is his will for your life? As Christians, that should be the first thing we think about, right? What does God want from me? And he's going to provide it. We, we all have talents. We all have gifts from God that we need to learn about, understand, and exercise. Exercise to his glory. Scripture talks about that all the time. Do everything to the glory of God. Do everything in his name to the glory of God. You, you may see 
on TV after a ball game, an athlete, you know, saying, well, first and foremost, let me give, my, let me give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And sometimes you think, yeah, and then, then he goes out and gets drunk after the game, you know, or whatever. I don't know. shouldn't say that. That's, that's judgy. But what he's saying is true. As Christians, we should be doing that. Even when we play, everything we do should be given to the glory of God. Very, very, very scriptural statement. We should have that foremost on our hearts, foremost on our mind. Jesus gives us a great example of that. Do we base our request solely on the promises of what he will do? Or do we seek to do his will first and then ask God to fulfill what he has promised? Two questions there that you need to be asking yourself. Two questions that you might want to think about and answer for yourself. And what else did he say here? Uh, I have finished the work. He had finished the work which had been given him. Now he's not yet gone to the cross here, although it's imminent. He knows it's coming. In fact, chapter 19, you can read about it, and we probably will before we finish with this study. And remember what he said in chapter 19, verse 30 at the end? It is finished. What's that statement mean? The work is done. The reason he came here is done. The work, the glorification of the Father has done. I mean, think about that. A worldly person sees Jesus go die for other people's sin? What's the point? Makes no sense. But, you see, Jesus was not of the world. He was of the kingdom. As we are. And as we are part of the kingdom, we do things that don't make sense to the world. And by doing that, God is glorified. Your purpose is served. The reason for being here is done. And you could even say, if you followed that through your whole life, you've been a Christian, you've been a child of God, you've lived according to the scriptures, according to his commands, and remember, what was the first command? To love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he said, by the way, in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we've done that, when we get to the end of our life here, we can say, it is finished. And then go on to heaven and be glorified with him. Fantastic statement, isn't it? Wonderful thing to think about. Jesus illustrates the proper place for the prayer. The proper place for prayer to occupy in our lives, right? Are you praying? Are you in prayer every day? Do you truly have a relationship with the Father? I mean, if, if you're going to glorify Him, don't you need to be in relationship with Him? Don't you need to be praying and talking with Him? I mean, that's part of the, what we got when He came here and died. The throne room was opened up. The veil was torn. And now we can go right in there through Jesus, our mediator, and speak to God right there in the throne room. Even with all our blemishes and with all our spots, all our sins, they're washed. We're purified. We can do that. We can go in front of God. Not like the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement when he had to get the incense in there to make it all murky and he had to spread the blood all over the mercy seat because they had sin and they couldn't go in the presence of God without dying. We can do that. 
That's a magnificent thing, is it not? Awesome thing to think about. We can go right there and talk to the creator of the universe. That should blow your mind. Jesus shows us that we need to be in prayer constantly, not just when we have a crisis. Is that when you pray? Do you just pray when somebody gets sick? Or maybe you lose a job? Or you got a financial situation that you're not sure you're going to know how to handle? Is that when you pray? If that's when you're doing it, that's not good. Because if you're living a life to glorify God, you should be in prayer with Him constantly. And then when those things happen, and they'll happen, it's just part of life. You just continue praying. And you know He's going to take care of it one way or the other. Even until death, we're still taken care of. We have that hope, that comfort from that. Well, the last question we asked there, was Jesus' prayer answered? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Interesting question to say, was his prayer answered? Was he reinstated to his glory? Did he accomplish the work that he had come to do? Did he actually glorify the Father? Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Turn your Bibles over there and let's just read a couple things there. Chapter 5, and let's begin with verse, um, verse 9. I can find it. Ask you verse 8. <clears throat> now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth of such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Revelation tells us he was raised from the dead and he's sitting on his throne. So, was he glorified? I would say so. According to Revelation, I think so. God declared Jesus as... God, he put him at the right hand on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. He raised him from the dead and he glorified him. He exalted him to the right hand of God as we've read Ephesians 1. I've read that many times in the kingdom. And then uh, he now reigns with authority over all nations. Also, another question you might ask is, is there still glory to come? If he's been glorified, is that it? Well, Let's look at that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Read something there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's begin in verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints. Wait a minute. 
to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's more glory to come. When Jesus returns, he's going to be glorified in his saints. Remember when we become Christians, we are sanctified, which is just a big word to say we're set apart. We're no longer of the world. We're of the kingdom. We've been set aside for a purpose, and that purpose is what? To glorify God. And when he comes, he will be glorified because of his saints, because of the work that they have done, because of the lives that they've lived, the gospel that they've preached, and that is to come when he comes again. And then in Matthew 25, and I'm going to go over there and read it, but he, will, he says we will sit on his throne of glory as he judges the world. So he will be glorified when he judges the world. He will have the authority to pass judgment on each and every person, each and every soul, and it will be determined where you're going to spend eternity. So there's glory to come. Jesus asked God to reinstate his glory, the glory that he had in heaven. And think about that. We've talked about, we've studied about the angels and stuff in here before. Some of you were in that class. We've talked about what heaven is like. And we, we can't imagine it in our finite fleshly minds, right? We just can't do it. But imagine what that's going to be like to be there with the king on his throne. The Godhead, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, there together in heaven for eternity. Magnificent. Heaven lit up by the light that's shining forth from God. The angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, all, all, the, all those singing out constantly praises to the Father what he's done, the glory that he received. <clears throat> Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Let's hear what Paul has to say about this. Get over there. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm just going to start in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He's talking to the brothers and sisters in Philippi here. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Which Jesus did. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, 
and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul kind of sums up what we've been talking about right there in that passage. Jesus came from heaven. He lowered himself to be a bondservant for our sakes, and he glorified God in doing so. Now he's reigning in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that's going to last forever. It always has been and always will be. And he has been highly exalted, given the name above all names. Oh, and by the way, when the judgment comes, who's going to be bowing down to him? Is it just the children of God? Is it just those who are now in the kingdom? No. It's going to be everybody, even those of the world. And they're going to be shouting his name as the king. You see, they don't believe, they don't understand doesn't make any sense to them, but guess what? On the day of judgment, it's going to make a lot of sense to them at that point. Now, I don't mean that to be mean or, or, ba- or nasty, but I'm just telling the truth. That's what Paul just told us. Everybody is going to know his name. It's coming, and you need to be ready. Be prepared, right? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will will confess him as Lord. He not only prayed, Father, behold, behold, uh, he not only prayed about, Father, glorify your son, he also prayed that we might behold his glory. And that's what we're reading about Paul here. Jesus desires we share in his glory. Revelation 2 and 3. In fact, let's turn over there and read that. Got a couple minutes here. Just read what those have to say. Revelation 2, and let's just read starting in verse uh, 24. Now I say to you, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, we're going to share in the glory. You might say, we're going to judge the nations. We're not God, of course. But you think of it as we're sanctified, we're set apart, we've been cleansed, we've been purified. In that sense, we're going to judge them too. We're going to judge the world, just like he is. We're going to share in that. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we're the judge or we're God or we're, we're, we're glorified as the Son of God, but we're saved, we're purified, we're going to share in His glory. From these two, this passage, and then look over in chapter 3 there, and let's just read a passage from verse, uh, verse 21. Or, uh, yeah, 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So, from these two passages, we know God has answered Jesus' prayer. He is now on his throne. He's reigning in his kingdom. He's been glorified. 
he is now back in heaven, living forever, and he's coming again. He's going to come again. We know God will answer his prayers pretty much because we know he's answered Jesus' prayer, right? I mean, we can use this to help us, give us confidence that what we petition God for will be answered. And as I've said, it may not be the answer we want, but we're going to get answers. We are children of God. We should take great confidence in that. We should take great joy and we have peace because of that. I've said it many times while we've been studying this gospel. You know where you're going, right? If you know where you're going, the things of this world are not going to be that big a deal. And I'm not downplaying things that happen in this world. There's some very important things we need to consider in this world. But when we have trouble, we can have peace. A peace passes all understanding. Because Jesus died for us and was raised again. And remember, the disciples still didn't get this stuff until they saw he was raised again. And then they started getting it. Of course, the Spirit came and helped them out. We know that he was raised again. We know that he is in heaven with the Father sitting at the right hand, reigning in his kingdom. We are part of that. We are his servants. We are his people. We are his children. And nothing can separate us from God. Except maybe us, ourselves. We don't follow through. But we have that hope. We have that confidence. And if you don't, if you're wondering about yourself, this, this time, today, whenever. I'm not going to give you an invitation in here, but maybe that's something you need to get straightened out before you leave here today. Just saying, maybe you don't have that prayer life that you need to have. Today's as good as day as any to start. Maybe you're wondering where you're going eventually. You need to get that straightened out so you can have that confidence and that assurance of salvation. Anyways, time is up. Thanks for being here.